Hi, this is Allison Sheridan with the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at Podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 14th, 2019, and this is show number 727. Well, we were on travel the better part of last week, and I'm working on a new tutorial for Screencast Online that I'm super excited about, and I'm doing a presentation to a local user group, and um, we had to binge watch uh, to catch up with Game of Thrones, and I had to walk the dog, and I actually forgot to record a chit-chat across the pond with anyone this week. I could have not mentioned this at all, could have just skipped over it, seen if nobody asked, or maybe, you know, made up some reason like, uh, oh, I had somebody scheduled, but they bailed on me, but... I thought you might enjoy the real reason more. We've got the last in our Feast of Reviews by Alistair Jenks coming up. In this review, you'll hear him say that the product is $579, and that's in New Zealand dollars. Just for reference, at today's exchange rate, that would be $390 US or €350. Now, let's hear about Alistair's latest find. It's not often I buy something high-end on impulse, but circumstances conspired against me. A colleague at work was raving about the headphones he had been given for Christmas. Worse, he brought them over and told me to put them on. Now, I have no trouble mentally tuning out the industrial noises of our building. There are unshrouded air and water pipes running over our heads, and being on the top floor, we can hear the air conditioning plant on the roof faintly behind the noise of the moving air from the vents. However, when I put on the Sony WH-1000XM3 headphones, I did a double take. All of the noise stopped completely stopped. My colleague started saying something and I could still hear him as if he was talking quietly, befitting the quiet room I was apparently in. When I took them off again, the roar of the building shocked me briefly. I asked my colleague how much he paid for the headphones. Not a cent, they were a gift. Yes, he's a smartass. He said he thought they were around 500 New Zealand dollars. Ouch. But over the next few weeks, several thoughts and plans prompted me to seriously consider them. I began looking around for deals. An online retailer had them for $399, but I wasn't sure if I could trust them. All the usual outlets had them for $579. One of those retailers has a special deal with my employer. We email their office and ask for a price on the item, and they respond with a quote and a voucher. Worth a crack, I thought. $369. A couple of hours later, I had them on my desk. So, what do you get for this still considerable price? Up to 30 hours of use on a single 3-hour charge, or 3 hours use on a 10-minute charge, is a pretty good start. The headphones are very comfortable. I've not worn them for more than about 90 minutes, but my colleague said he's gone many hours with them on and not had any complaints. The right ear cup has a large touch surface, which you can use to stop and start your music, skip forward and back, or answer a call. Did I mention it has multiple beam-forming microphones and you can take calls? You can also hold your whole hand over the touch surface to temporarily drop the sound level very low and turn off the noise cancellation so you can converse with someone. Using a button on the left side, you can invoke either Google Assistant or Alexa. Or you can invoke Siri via a touch and hold on the right cup touch surface via your phone like you would with a corded remote. Then you can open the iOS or Android app and configure the sound to your liking. There is a sliding scale of noise reduction that goes from near total to allowing most ambient sound through. You can let the noise reduction let more voice frequencies through. You can choose from equalizer presets and set an artificial location for the sound. I find it weird, but you can make the sound come from in front of you with this setting. 
You can also set a soundstage such as a concert hall or arena. There is adaptive noise reduction too. With this mode selected, the headphones try to detect what you are doing and adjust accordingly. If you are sitting down, maximum noise reduction occurs, but if you get up and walk somewhere, some ambient noise is allowed through, so you don't get run over by a bus you never heard. One of the most interesting functions is the personalization function. You place the headphones on your head and either push a button or invoke from the app and a sequence of steps determines the noise profile based on multiple factors including the shape of your head, whether you're wearing glasses and the atmospheric pressure. It is recommended to rerun this when any of these things change, such as when travelling on an aeroplane. So the WH-1000XM3 headphones are full of features. How do they sound? Quite simply, superb. I've listened to quite a bit of music of varying genres and am often surprised by how rich the sound can be. I would at first have said there was too much bass, then later that there wasn't enough, until I realised it really depends on the source. The huge variety of mastering standards for music has never been more evident to me. Then again, there's always the equaliser if you're not happy with how things sound. Over Bluetooth, the standard frequency response of 20Hz to 20kHz is produced, but if you use the included 3.5mm audio cord, that expands to 4Hz to 40kHz. The noise reduction is superb. I tried them out on the train on the way home. I was just listening to a podcast, which is what I normally do with my Beats X earbuds. The Beats X make it easy to hear the voices, or music, but I can also hear the sounds of the train. With the Sony... I can have a relaxing ride no matter how quiet the podcast voices are. To me, the real value of these headphones lies in the double effect of the noise reduction. In addition to blocking out the noise of your environment, which is relaxing, you also do not need to turn up quiet content to hear it. I'm still not sure I would have paid the $579 retail for these headphones, but at the discounted price, I feel I have really got something of great value. I'm looking forward to trying them out on a long flight I have coming up. Wow, Alistair, those sound really, really nice. I'm kind of jealous, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm also very sad that this is the last year post because I've been leaning heavily on the uh, content that you've been able to provide for us. Well, as you all have probably noticed by now, this show doesn't have any ads. It's supported partially via Patreon. With Patreon, you choose a dollar amount to support the show, either weekly or monthly, and then you're done. You just pick that dollar amount and you're good to go. But there's one benefit I've never mentioned. You can message me directly through Patreon. Ian wrote in recently, and he said very lovely things about the show, but he also asked for a favor. He said, My old person eyes have a special request. Can you post an enlarged view of the wonderful 2019 iPad comparison chart that you posted? Ideally, a high-res PDF that could be downloaded when one clicks on the very helpful chart you made. Now, how could I possibly choose to, uh, you know, refuse a request like that? Not being able to see something is so frustrating, I can definitely empathize with that. I immediately uploaded a high-res version, and I made it a link from the original chart so that Ian could see it. You know I love all feedback and will continue to answer your emails, but it was especially nice when Ian wrote to me via Patreon. If you want to have another way to contact me, check out Patreon at podfeed.com slash Patreon and be cool like Ian. Back in 2010, when Steve Jobs announced the iPad, he posed a really interesting question. He asked, is there room for a third category of device in the middle, something that's between a laptop and a smartphone? I think most of us would agree that there was room for the iPad. 
I started thinking about this question when the new iPads came out. We have the big girl iPads Pro at 11 and 12.9 inches. We have the medium size iPads with the iPad Air and the iPad Nothing, but we also got a new baby iPad Mini. What I wondered was whether there was room in my digital life for an iPad Mini along with my giant 12.9 inch iPad Pro. My hope is that my description of where it fits and where it doesn't might give you an idea of whether it would fit into your life. Shortly after I got the first gen 12.9 inch iPad Pro, Steve surprised me with a 9.7 inch iPad Pro. While there was absolutely nothing wrong with this device, and it might have been great for most people, I just couldn't figure out when to use it. It was too close in size to the 12.9 inch to differentiate itself. It kind of felt like a constant compromise to me rather than having any virtues of its own. Recently, I have found a use for the 9.7 inch though. When I do the live show, I use a lot of devices. I have my MacBook Pro hooked up to a 27 inch display, but that's still not enough screen real estate. So I use the Luna Display USB-C device to turn my 12.9 inch iPad Pro into a third display for my Mac. I put the live chat room from Discord over on the big girl iPad Pro, and then I can really stretch out on all my screens. Now, you might wonder why I don't just run Discord natively on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I did consider that option. The problem is that I route the audio of my voice and playback of recordings from Hindenburg into Discord from my Mac. So I simply have to be in Discord on the Mac. It won't come through if it's uh, coming in just on the iPad. The fine folks at Boinks make Mimo Live, which runs on Steve's iMac and does all of the video and audio switching to produce the live video. They also have an iOS app called Mimo Remote. This is a control surface that allows me to do video and audio switching on Steve's Mimo Live session. It's essential for me for a couple of things. My darling producer has a habit of forgetting to mute himself when I start to record. So sometimes I can hear him typing, chatting to Tesla when I'm trying to record. With Mimo Remote, I can mute him myself. Mimo Remote also shows me both of our camera views so I can actually see Steve and see how my video looks. Since I'm out of screen real estate, the 9.7-inch iPad Pro was my tool of choice to run Mimo Remote. It worked pretty well placed right in front of me, but it did kind of occlude the bottom of my screen. Now let's talk about the iPad Mini. We're back to the question at hand. Can the iPad Mini have a place in my life that the 9.7-inch iPad Pro did not deliver? I bought myself an early birthday present. I got the Space Gray iPad Mini, pumped up the storage, and then splurged on the cellular model. I added cellular because I think I was dumb not buying it on my third-gen 12.9-inch iPad Pro. When we travel, we use Google Fi for our data, so I could put one of the data cards in an iPad Pro and not have to tether to my phone. I did not want to make that mistake again. As is my goal in life, I bought the iPad mini in the dumbest way possible. I started by procrastinating and not buying it on day one. By the time I bought it, delivery had slipped out a few weeks. I take this as a sign that the iPad mini is in high demand, which is good news for Apple, but it was bad news for me. The other thing that was kind of odd, though, was Apple didn't announce the date when they would be available in store. So I set research assistant Stephen Getz on the lookout to let me know when they were available. He alerted me on March 31st that they were in store, and I checked my local store, but they didn't have the model I wanted. I widened my search criteria, and I discovered that if I drove 35 minutes to the Grove, I could get it on that very day. Now, I should have been working on the show due that day, but I hopped in the car and I spent more than an hour in L.A. traffic. (laughs) Yes, there's traffic even on a Sunday. 
I spent all that time to go get my precious. The good news is I got the iPad mini on day one. The bad news is that even though Steve reminded me, I still forgot to cancel the original online purchase. (sighs) I can't believe I did that again. It's not the first time I've been that dumb. Anyway, the iPad mini delivery was scheduled for the following Friday while we'd be off in Utah visiting friends. But luckily, I was able to divert the delivery location to my local UPS store. I am sure glad I didn't wait for the delivered one, because on the delivery day, I got a notice from Apple saying, oh, yeah, it's like delayed. We didn't really ship it. It didn't come for three more days. I probably had had plenty of time to cancel it, but they said it was already shipped. Oh, well, it was a quick trip to the Apple store after I picked it up from UPS to return it back to Apple. All right, after all that preamble, we are now in search of the problem to be solved. My process to see where the Mini might fit was to use it as my default iPad and only turn to another device when I didn't feel the Mini suited my needs. The best reason to get an iPad Mini, in my opinion, is for portability. Before I bought the Mini, I cut a piece of paper to the dimensions of the Mini and I checked to see if it would fit in my purse. I carry a very small backpack-style purse and it slipped right in. I have found since getting the Mini that I tend to carry it around with me now, where clearly my 12.9-inch iPad Pro was not an option for day-to-day carrying around. I do remember years ago when I got the first iPad, and I had a fairly larger purse, I did carry it around a lot more often. Now, you know how they say the best camera is the one they have with you? Maybe the best iPad is the iPad you have with you. When I got my very first iPad, I tried using it to read books, using both the Kindle app and iBooks, now called Books. I found the iPad to be very heavy for the job, and it was too easy to get distracted and read Twitter and such. I abandoned the iPad for the job, and I got a Kindle. I thought I'd give the iPad mini a shot at reading books, since Lindsay says she really likes to read books on hers. For one week, I used the iPad mini instead of my Kindle, and I gotta say, I went back to the Kindle again. The mini was just enough heavier to be annoying, and I found that I had to muck about with the settings too much. You see, I like to read lying on my side, so I had to swipe down to lock rotation. I also keep my iPad brightness cranked all the way up, so I also had to dim the screen in order to not blind myself when I turned out the lights. That was just too much faffing about for me. I know that sounds like I'm super lazy, but I don't have to do that on my Kindle. And remember, I have to reverse all that faffing about process when I get up in the morning. That said, if I've got my iPad mini with me when I'm out and about, It's a great option to keep reading the book I've got on my Kindle. With Amazon's awesome WhisperSync service, I can open a book in the Kindle app and it will point out, you know what, you're not on the latest page synced. Would you like to be at the latest page? I love that. I do read a bit on my phone, but it's a lot more fun on the bigger screen of the iPad mini. Now, my 12.9-inch iPad Pro is my television. In the morning getting ready, I watch video podcasts, usually daily tech news show, and if Dorothy doesn't come to the gym, I use it, I use it to, play, uh, to watch screencasts online. In the afternoons, eating my popcorn snack, I watch Netflix shows like Grace and Frankie or The Good Place or maybe some Grey's Anatomy on Hulu on my iPad Pro. When you watch video, have you ever wished you had a smaller screen? Yeah, me neither. Even going to the gym, I really found that the 9.7 inch was too small for the job. 
When I'm watching screencasts online on the elliptical, I'm paying really close attention to the tiny menus of Lightroom when Todd Althoff is teaching it, or the axis labels for a graph in Excel being taught by Richard Baker, or seeing the subtleties of using the timeline in ScreenFlow when Don McAllister himself is teaching. The 7.9-inch screen on the iPad mini is not likely to be my go-to device for the gym for video watching. Now, the good news is that most of the time, Dorothy is at the gym with me. Because the mini fits in my purse, I've started toting it along. A few times, it's been handy when Dorothy and I are on the elliptical talking about our homework for programming by stealth. I'm sure people around us think we're nuts talking programming while exercising, but hey, we're nerds and we love it. The iPhone screen is pretty good, but having nearly, I don't know, more than double what pushing triple the real estate on the iPad mini and yet super light to hand back and forth between us makes the iPad mini the perfect device for this task. I have to say, the iPad mini is winning the portability event for sure. Now, the camera on the iPhone XS is phenomenal. And I was actually sad on our trip to Zion that the photos from my phone were competitive and in some cases better than my big girl Olympus camera. But, you know, that's a whole nother topic. Well, the other day I was in my office and my cats were being particularly adorable right outside the door. I didn't have my iPhone with me in my room, so I grabbed the iPad mini and I took the shot. It's not a great photo, and in fact, I didn't share it with anyone, but I look at it and it makes me smile. iPad mini's camera will not replace my iPhone for sure, but if it's the camera you have, it is the best camera. In the mornings, when I'm sipping my first cup of coffee sitting in bed, I like to triage my email and write witty responses on social media. The 12.9-inch iPad Pro has been my companion for this since the day I got it. I tried using the iPad mini for the task, and there's one huge downside. While I have the awesome new Folio keyboard from Apple on my 12.9-inch iPad, the mini does not support an Apple keyboard. Typing on iPad screens is certainly possible, but it's not the best experience around. When you shrink down to the mini size, I find in some ways that it's harder to type on than an iPhone. At least with iPhone, they don't pretend you can have a real keyboard. I can get the job done on the iPad mini, but it is not fun at all. For a short period, I tried the split keyboard on the mini to see if it would be possible to thumb type, but I have to keep looking left, right, left, right, left, right to see where the keys are in this non-standard configuration. I should probably make a commitment to try to, I don't know, say for two weeks just to really try it so I can truly learn the positions before I give up on it, but it's a pretty frustrating experience right now. I have pretty big hands for a woman, and it's just really uncomfortable to hold the iPad in portrait mode or in landscape. It just doesn't work for me. When Apple came out with Face ID for iPhone, I was immediately a fan. I simply love Face ID. It's wicked fast on iPhone, and I see no downsides to it. Face ID works when my fingers are wet or gooey from cooking or maybe too dry, I knew that buying an iPad mini, I was walking back into the past with Touch ID. But guess what? I like it way, way better than Face ID on an iPad. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's absolutely true. With my phone, 90% of the time I want to interact with it, it's in my hand. So it's at the perfect angle to use Face ID, and the camera is up at the top. But with an iPad, it's almost never in my hand at the correct angle for Face ID. With my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, I realized I have to bend at my waist to get my face into position for Face ID. With the iPad Mini, I only have to move my hand and my thumb, not my whole upper body. 
I mean, do you realize that with Face ID on an iPad, you're accidentally doing a half a sit-up? We can't be accidentally exercising. That's crazy. Well, another problem with Face ID on iPad, and I'm pretty sure they're going to have to fix this in a software update because it's really annoying, is that really, really often the iPad will tell you that you're covering the camera with your hand. I believe the camera's on the left-hand side, and it was adorable the first few times, and it made the little animation and pointed over at it, and I laughed at myself for being so silly to have covered it up. But after about, I don't know, 372 times so far of it telling me I'm covering the camera, I'm really weary of it. Now, in case you just think I'm a really slow learner on how to hold the iPad, ask any of your friends with Face ID on an iPad whether they get that message all the time, too. Pat Dingler and I went out the other night, and she was complaining about it without me even prompting her, so I know it's not just me. The other weird thing is, half the time, we're not even near where we think that camera is. So, Touch ID on iPad Mini for the win. Very surprising. I mentioned uh, way back at the beginning of this that I've been using the 9.7-inch iPad Pro for the control surface for Mimo Live called Mimo Remote. It works, but as I said, the 9.7-inch kind of occludes part of my monitor because it sticks up pretty high. Well, the battery on the 9.7-inch seems to discharge quite quickly, even though Coconut Battery claims it's in good shape. If I don't charge it all week long, even with little to no usage at all, the 9.7's battery will be dead by showtime. I mean, it's easy enough to plug in a lightning cable, but still, it's annoying. Well, I thought maybe the iPad mini would be a better tool for the job, and I was right. iPad mini fits perfectly under my monitor, and the big square button interface of Mimo Remote is perfectly easy to use on that diminutive screen. I'm excited to have this great use for the iPad mini. Now, when Steve Jobs first announced iPad, he purposely sat in a comfy chair and he leaned back to demonstrate how awesome the product was. The lean-back experience is where iPad really shines. I'm actually going to give the win to iPad Mini on this one over 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Oddly, it's for the same reason that the big iPad won in the morning. When I'm winding down for the day to watch TV, the 12.9-inch iPad Pro with a keyboard does not give me a lean-back experience. I find myself being productive with it. I start typing emails, responding to text messages, and making snarky comments on social media if that can be called productive. Anyway, iPad mini is way too hard to do those things, so instead I can reach over, grab it, check IMDb to figure out why I've seen that actress, or check the weather or scroll through recent photos. I dislike typing on it so much that it's my preferred lounging, casual-use iPad when I'm downstairs. Plus, did I mention it's smaller and lighter to carry down there? Well, bottom line is that I'm delighted with my iPad mini and it's found many places to squeeze into my digital life. If I had to give up the 12.9 inch or the mini, the big girl iPad would definitely win out. But I still love this little device. I find myself carrying it around the house, throwing it in my purse just in case, and just generally playing around with it much more than I ever did the 9.7 inch iPad Pro. As you know, pretty much everything you hear on the podcast is also available as blog posts. You did know that, right? I guess I should mention that from time to time for new listeners. Anyway, one of the biggest advantages of doing the blog posts before the show is that people often find mistakes or they add new information that I can incorporate into the show for everyone's benefit. After I posted about whether the Mac Mini uh, would fit into your digital life, a lot of people responded in our Slack. If you're not a member of our Slack, you really should be. A lot of fun going on over there, podfeed.com slash Slack. 
Anyway, I was fascinated that every single person who replied agreed that the Mini did have a place in their digital lives. David said, I have two fourth-gen Minis, one at home and one in my office. I use them exclusively for reading. Books, Instapaper, PDF Expert, RSS. I've purposely kept everything else off of them. No social apps, no email, and no messaging. They make a great distraction-free reading device. I think that's a really great method, a great way to keep the mini separated and give it a specific function. Alistair said, it does for me. My non-retina mini died of repair issues, so I replaced it with a 9.7-inch Pro because I had to try the Apple Pencil. I don't actually use the Pencil that much, nor the iPad, really. But when the new Mini was announced, I found myself trying to come up with reasons not to get one. The Pro has been wiped for sale. Anyone want one? And the Mini is awesome. I've never had an external keyboard for an iPad, save for brief experimentation with a spare Magic Keyboard, and I'm finding the Mini way better for typing because in portrait orientation, I can thumb type just like I could do on my iPhone 8. Well, I've met Alistair in person, and I don't know, his hands must be way bigger than mine, and I never noticed that because I cannot thumb type on it at all. I, in, in portrait mode, man, it just wants to flip over, so I don't quite know how he's able to do that, but I'm glad the Mini has a place in his life. Frank is a fan of the Mini too, but he learned it the hard way. Uh, he wrote, I sold my Mini to a friend for his son's use and bought a 10.5-inch. The 10.5-inch is great, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I still miss the Mini. Jill is in the same camp as me. She wrote, I have the Big Pro, and it is great when you have eight hours of meetings or you want some entertainment. Recently, I got a Mini for bad sleeping habits, but I have fallen in love with the versatility. It's easy to deal with on airplanes. It's great for bird watching, surrounded by big binoculars and cameras. I took it to a conference and used it and pencil for notes and schedules. It's a huge hit in a tiny size for me. Well, I was really intrigued by Jill's idea of taking notes on the Mini, so I asked her what applications she was using. She said, I use OneNote for organizing my whole life at work and home, and pencil works great with it. I've been tinkering with Noted, which does well too. On an interesting note, Incredible, spelled with a K, made my handwriting legible. In other news, I love testing apps. Well, Jill is sure our people, isn't she? She's been listening for a long time, but just began interacting lately. I love talking to her. Anyway, I downloaded Incredible with a K, and I'm giving it a shot. Anything that can make my handwriting better is a good thing. In any case, I hope all these testimonials will help you clear out your excuses for why not to buy a Mini, because it sure feels like it does have a place in your digital life. A few years back, Agile Bits decided to change the business model for 1Password to have not just the standalone one-time purchase version, but also a subscription service at 1Password.com. With 1Password.com, Agile Bits took over syncing of our vaults, gave us a web interface, and with the subscription service, they've been able to build in more enhancements than ever before. I don't want to go through all of the angst about subscription fatigue, but rather I want to talk about how great 1Password.com is and how it saved a good friend of ours. In order to tell the story properly, I kind of have to throw our friend Sidney completely under the bus. He gave me his permission to do this because the story is pretty interesting. A few years ago, Sidney and his wife, Myrna, expressed an interest in learning about how to secure their passwords. On a visit to, vis to see them, I sat down with Sidney and I gave him the basic lesson on one password. But we didn't have enough time to really dig in and start working on his passwords. 
A few weeks later, when we weren't there, Myrna contacted me and we did a screen share where I was able to remotely teach her how to use it. While we were on Skype, we set up a family share account for the two of them at OnePassword.com with Myrna as the administrator since she seemed a bit more into it than Sydney. As the admin, Myrna on OnePassword.com, Myrna can do things like reset passwords for those in her shared family and do other things to help the family members use the tool. Fast forward to last week. Sydney and Myrna built a gorgeous house in the mountains, so we went out to visit them again. Between hiking, eating, drinking, playing with our dogs, and learning to play canasta, we did still find some downtime to geek out. Sydney asked me if I'd help him finally get in gear on one password. He really wanted to do it, he just hadn't gotten around to it. Of course, I was delighted that he wanted to do it, and I was glad to help. Now, Sydney hadn't been into his vault in a very long time. So he fetched his paper copy of what Agile Bits calls the 1Password Emergency Kit. Members are issued one of these when they create their initial login. You get a very long secret key on this page and a QR code to scan so you don't have to type in that really long secret key. There's also a place to record your master password. Now you don't need this crazy secret key very often, pretty much just the first time you log in on a new device. Armed with his emergency kit, Sydney had his master password, and we were able to get to work. Resetting passwords on websites is really annoying, and some sites are more annoying than others. I was hoping we would pick a few easy ones first to work on, but sadly, the first one we did was a total mess. It was hard to find the right page to reset it. It seemed to forget the password we created with one password, and it probably took us more than an hour to do just this one login. We were tired after that and decided to wait until the next day to fix another password. Well, that night happened to be a Sunday, so Steve and I were going to be broadcasting the live Nocillacast from their house. Sydney graciously allowed me to use his home office from which to broadcast, and it has a lovely view of the mountains. Steve, sadly, was relegated to the guest room, which also has a lovely view of the mountains. Well, when it came time to do the live show, I decided that instead of having my Logitech C920 webcam pointing at me, it might be more fun for the audience to get a look at the view. I turned the camera on and mounted it facing out of the window. Sydney had been in the live show before, but not in a long time. Steve got him set up with a Discord login at podfeed.com slash chat, and he went to town playing with the other live show listeners. Sydney was just really getting into the spirit of things. Well, part of the fun of the live show is how, much, how we have a bunch of these silly rituals. For example, Kevin is Steve's self-appointed wingman. He takes his duties very seriously. His main job is to protest whenever I, I give Steve a hard time for something, you know, like forgetting to mute himself. But his other job is to remind me to save. Now, he must have a text expander snippet for this because he always says it the same way. He says, and I quote, save and add chapter marker pod feet because Steve commands it. I'm pretty good about noticing his messages, but sometimes I get on a roll and I forget to save or make chapter markers. And that's exactly what happened when we were at Sydney and Myrna's house. The whole chat room was hollering at me to save, and I was simply not noticing it. So Sydney figured out a great way to get my attention. He grabbed a piece of paper and he scrawled save on it in giant letters. He ran outside and he slapped the paper against the glass right in front of me of my window so I could see it out the window. It was hilarious. Well, was hilarious until Steve and Kaylee and the others noticed something awful. The paper he had chosen on which to write save 
was his 1Password emergency kit. Now, to be fair, he wrote it on the back of the paper, so the secret info was facing him, not us, and from his side, the paper looked opaque. But for me, with the sun shining through the window, I could see right through the paper and read all of the secret information. Now, if I could see it, that meant my camera could see it, which meant YouTube Live could see it, which means the internet could see it. Yep, his secret key, the QR code, and his master password were now on the internet. I mean, I guess he didn't have his social security number on there. That's about the only thing he left out. Well, quite quickly, Steve announced to the live audience, you know, we're going to be shutting down the live stream now. So he cut that off while I was still recording, and he very quickly deleted the stored video from YouTube. But, you know, as we all know, nothing is ever truly deleted from the internet, right? Well, while we had great fun at Sydney's expense, I mean, there was quite a bit of ribbing about how silly can you be? He was a great sport about all the kidding he received, but we had some work to do. This is where the awesomeness of 1Password.com comes into play. After I was done recording, Myrna logged into her uh, their 1Password family account at 1Password.com. Since she's the admin, she was able to go to the People section, click on Sydney, and then on his page, click the three dots next to More Action, and choose Delete User. It's kind of interesting to watch how quickly and decisively she did that. I mean, no hesitation. Boom! Delete. Anyway, we took this sledgehammer approach for a couple of reasons. She could have simply reset his master password, but I wasn't certain whether that would generate a new secret key. Since both were compromised, we decided to just burn the house down. Now, had Sydney created more than one login on his one password account, we could have shared his vault to her and then destroyed his account. But as it was the only login he had created, it was, it was already in that shared vault, we knew we were okay to just kill the whole account. Now, the really cool part of the 1Password experience was on Sydney's side. He had 1Password open on his Mac, and he was looking at the vaults when Myrna hit the delete button over on her Mac. Instantly, the 1Password screen sort of collapsed in on itself and just vaporized. It was crazy cool. He was like, wow, that's neat. Anyway, after she was done nuking him, Myrna was able to make a new person for Sydney. He was uh, able to follow the invite link that came to his email and set up his new account. One password issued him a new secret key. We double-checked that it was new. And he went over to Bart's awesome xkpasswd.net tool to create his new, long, secure, and yet memorable master password. He recorded the new password, and then Myrna took custody of the paper for safekeeping. She would not let him keep it. I'd like to say it all went as easily as this, but there were a few interesting hiccups to the story and the solutions may be of service to others. When Sidney went to one password with his new shiny password and secret key, we saw his shared vault with Myrna. But when he was looking at it, I noticed the interface in one password looked different from mine. I realized he was running one password six, not the new shiny one password seven. With version seven, you get some huge enhancements. In the older version, if you have a login, you want to move from one vault to another, say to share with a family member. You have to right-click on it and drill down and down and down through a whole bunch of menus and then choose Move or Copy. With 1Password 7, you can simply drag and drop between vaults. I love this feature. The other big deal is that Agile Bits has integrated the Have I Been Pwned tool into 1Password 7. Troy Hunt created this web-based tool 
at haveibeenpwned.com. Here's the idea. He crawls all of the hacked databases, and then he will tell you if your email or password is in any of them, telling you if you've been pwned. Even if you've been using a password manager for a long time and practicing good hygiene with long, complex passwords, you can't guarantee that the sites you visit will keep good care of your data. With Have I Been Pwned built into 1Password 7, you can always see what work you need to do to stay safe. These two things, drag and drop and integration of Have I Been Pwned, made me want to get Sydney to upgrade his 1Password to 1Password 7 right away. I mean, they were entitled to 1Password 7 because they were subscribed to 1Password.com. When I upgraded him to 1Password 7, things got weird. Remember, he was able to log into 1Password 6 with his new password. But when we installed 1Password 7, he could not log in on his Mac. However, he could log in with that password on his iPhone. If I had not been sitting right next to him and sometimes typing it myself, my own little fingers, I never would have believed this wasn't user error because it made no sense. How could he not be able to log in on his phone, but he could log in on, or could log in on his phone, but not on his Mac? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I tried uninstalling 1Password 7, installing both from the, uh, reinstalling from both the Agile Bits website and then with the Mac App Store. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to get him into his account. We shot off an email to support at Agile Bits and in a very short order, our little friend Gareth wrote back. He explained it like this. Your Mac app is currently pointed to your previous vault and locked with your previous master password. We need to reset it so that we can attach it to your new vault. The, pro- the option to reset the 1Password data is pretty well hidden, mainly because we don't want people doing it by accident. But it's super quick and easy to do once you know where it is. He gave us the link to the, to the support article explaining the process. The basic idea is you choose help, troubleshooting, reset all 1Password data, and follow the on-screen instructions. Well, this suggestion was dandy. We were finally able to log Sydney into 1Password 7. But oddly, he had no vaults when he got in. After a few more exchanges, Gareth suggested Sydney just delete the 1Password that I downloaded from the Mac App Store, that was the last version I did, and install the version from their website again. Finally, Sydney could log in, and more importantly, he could see his vaults. Now, the upgrade process wasn't as smooth as I would have hoped, but I do think that the continued revenue stream of the subscription model allows Agile Bits to play Gar- pay Gareth's salary so that he was there to help us. He responded very quickly, was super knowledgeable, and fixed all of the problems we were having. As I mentioned, the new subscription model gives us access to Have I Been Pwned? And immediately after Sydney enabled it on his account, he discovered that his password on Amazon had been compromised. He found this after I left his house. Without any assistance from me, he had 1Password create a long, complex password for him, changed it on Amazon, and while he was there, he turned on two-factor authentication. I was so proud of him. I mean, it was just, it was great. It was like I let go of the training wheels and he raced off and was on a dirt bike flying down the hills. I mean, he even did two-factor authentication. The bottom line is that 1Password's family account, available through their subscription service, is well worth the money. If you're going to spend money on any subscription, the safety of your password seems like a pretty good place to spend it, in my opinion. As Sydney said when we were all done, I stay patched and stay secure. Now, I mentioned earlier the benefit of having blog posts ahead of recording, and it happened again with that blog post. David Tier, the founder of AgileBits, makers of 1Password, made a comment on the blog. 
I thought you'd be interested in hearing the extra information he provided. He wrote, This was a great story. Thank you for sharing. Looks like we have some improvements we need to do on the Mac side when resetting accounts. We'll look into that. But just so you know, there is an option on OnePassword.com to generate a new secret key as well as changing your master password. Hopefully this doesn't happen again, but if it does, changing your secret key and master password this way will give you a much smoother experience. By the way, I'm a huge fan of Bolivia. It's very similar to Canasta, but it has some additional rules that make for a really fun game. Well, I want to thank David for that uh, uh, comment. That's great to know that you can get a new secret key that way, because those secret keys, man, if you don't keep them, you're doomed if you don't have them. So it's great to know that the admin can still get to those. However, now I have to go learn Bolivia, and Canasta has a lot of rules already, but hey, more games is more good. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a Patreon like uh, like Ian? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Slack is on fire right now, especially the programming by Stealth Channel, the Security Bits Channel. We've got separated little groups where you can learn about different things. It's great. Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Bugsy did this week for the first time, that's at Podfeet.com slash chat. If you want to join the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.